brother and sister this time to started, I'd like to remind you to please turn off your cell phones. And because of the copyright laws, please no video or audio recording. Pictures are just fine, but please no recording. This afternoon, I'm up my sister, Carol Hogan, in South Carolina, Utah. Uh, one of the 
things that I have suggested each of the previous days that I'll suggest again is to just be willing to slow down and take some time. Uh, so we've talked in previous days about uh, taking the time to explore symbolism and what uh, those symbols are, to look at the literal symbol and unpack what it might mean in Isaiah's day and what it might mean in our life. Uh, we've talked about poetic devices. We've talked about um, uh, the history, understanding a couple of key historical elements really opens Isaiah up to you. Um, and today we're going to talk about what we call dual or really multiple fulfillments. Uh, this is one of the great keys to understanding Isaiah, is to recognize that most of his prophecies are designed to have fulfillments in more than one time period. And I will argue probably a hundred times just today that it's really helpful if we will look for the original context and the original fulfillment, it helps us understand other fulfillments better. And I, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but let me touch on it again today. When I first felt like I was really starting to understand Isaiah is when I was on my mission and I, I got three different translations of Isaiah, well, of the Bible. Um, and I would read one and ask what would this have meant for Israel and Isaiah's day? And then I'd read another and I'd ask, what does this mean for Israel, modern Israel, in our day, the covenant people of our day? And the third, I would ask, what does this mean for me as an Israelite individual? And I found that it was very rare if I couldn't find a real and significant meaning for all three of those. And that's part of what we want to do, is learn to be able to recognize the different ways that Isaiah can be fulfilled, and it will help us apply it in our own lives better. I really think that we'll be much better at taking meaning from Isaiah and having it affect us and do something about it in our day if we have uh, taken the time to learn about its original fulfillment. And this is part of my passion that you've heard me say a number of times that have been coming, my passion for making the scriptures real. Uh, that uh, the more real they are, the better we apply them to our own lives. It's why I teach uh, trying to make them real. I have a podcast trying to make it real. I write trying to make it real. And here I am speaking, trying to make it real. Uh, if we can look at some of those original fulfillments, uh, then it will help us understand the latter-day fulfillments and the personal fulfillments better. So let's start by asking what, what sometimes makes it difficult for us to understand multiple fulfillments, to say uh, that this prophecy is fulfilled this way and that way and that way and so on. And part of it is our legalistic culture. We have a really, really legalistic culture. Almost everything we do is affected one way or another by lawyers. And I'm not going to tell any lawyer jokes, but it is tempting. Um, but uh, it, it really is, it's affected our society and the way we view things. And we want, see, and this thing, in a legalistic culture, you want one thing to mean this one thing and not to have other possible meanings. Because that causes a problem in, in legal situations, right? You have to know exactly how to interpret this. Uh, and so we're not comfortable with saying, well, it's, it's all of the above. But that is frequently the case when we're dealing with Isaiah. As we study Isaiah, uh, we, we will uh, say, okay, well, it, it, I think it means this. And some of us will say, well, I think it means this. And the answer is probably all of them. And Isaiah often intended more than one meaning, but I also believe that there are important fulfillments that Isaiah probably didn't understand or foresee. Right, so or maybe I'll just give an example and a, and a shout out to my, my friend uh, Tammy Hall, who I think is, is somewhere here. Uh, she does the Sunday and Monday podcast um, for Deseret Book. 
And uh, she was talking to me once about, I think that this Isaiah passage might be interpreted this way. And I've never heard anyone interpret it that way. But I had to stop and think, you know, I think she's argued this out fairly well. I, I believe it has another interpretation, but that doesn't mean that her interpretation isn't also valid. Isaiah probably intended that. And even if he didn't, it may still be valid. But he did absolutely intend multiple fulfillments. And that's hard for us because we don't want all of the above to be the answer. We want A to mean A and not also B and C. Right. Okay. We also tend to avoid complexity. It's just easier to say, okay, this means this, move on. Right? It, we don't have to slow down as much. We can just say, okay, that's a simple meaning, and that, that's easy for me, and now I can keep moving. Um, we also tend to focus on our favorite topics. Our favorite topics typically are Millennial Day, when everything's going to be wonderful, we're getting ready for the last days. Favorite topics are the Savior, uh, and if we can see a fulfillment for that, then we're happy with that, and we don't need to feel like we're exploring more, and, and we just move on. And we can kind of combine that with a focus on ourselves. Right? What we really want is to know, what does this have to do with me? Well, that's not bad. You should want to know how the, what do the scriptures have to do with you, but I would say that, again, that you will better understand what it has to do with you if you can look at all of the different fulfillments that Isaiah intended. So this is a long, boring thing that I wrote once, but we're, I, I'll just read it to you because I want to make sure we say this right. I think we do a disservice to ourselves and our faith community, that would be members of the church, when we label a particular fulfillment as the fulfillment. That prevents us from seeing some of the other powerful ways it can and should be applied. I also believe it is not faithful to Isaiah's genius or intent. If we are going to allow Isaiah to speak with the intent he carefully crafted his writings to convey, then we need to allow for and seek out multiple meanings. I think Isaiah did intentionally with most of his prophecies. There are a couple that may only have one fulfillment, but with most of his prophecies, he intentionally wrote them in a way that they would have more than one fulfillment. Now, this is part of why it's a little bit difficult, because you have to be a little bit vague if it's going to have multiple fulfillments. And so Isaiah is sometimes a little bit vague, but that's so that it can have multiple fulfillments. Well, I think I have this whole thing again. Oh, uh, all right, so uh, I wanted to add this one at the end. Another thing that makes it difficult to understand is some of our typical LDS tools. So, uh, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean, it, it's, it, sometimes it's in the way we take it. It's also some other things. So, for example, um, one of the reasons that I, I wrote my own commentary on every person I say is because as much as I love the other commentaries, and they're written by good friends of mine who have been my teachers and my friends and my colleagues, uh, and they're wonderful, and they've helped shape the way I understand Isaiah. But really, all the other commentaries, some more than others, tend to just jump right to the latter-day fulfillment. And if there is a latter-day fulfillment, they say this is the fulfillment, and they don't talk about other, other fulfillments. And I feel like that's doing this disservice that I talked about. Latter-day saints need someone who will help them see all of the possible fulfillments. And, and, and even in a... The, way too big commentary that I wrote, is it possible to go through all of them? No. Uh, there are plenty of verses where I thought, wow, I could talk about how this is fulfilled in 10 time periods, but uh, that would make this book way too long. And so I, I don't go through all of them even then, but at least uh, I hope that we try to look at all of these fulfillments. Um, but it's not just those kinds of tools, it's even tools in our, our Bible. All right, so let me give you some examples. This is a chapter heading for chapter four of Isaiah. Uh, Zion and her daughters will be redeemed and cleansed in the millennial day. Right? And by writing that, it makes us feel like that's the only time 
that he's talking about Zion and her daughters being cleansed. But I'm convinced it's not. He's talking about it also happening in his day and other time periods. Uh, let's give another example. Um, Israel will be gathered and enjoy millennial rest and all sorts of other things. Well, that's true, but is that the only possible fulfillment? I do not believe it is. Uh, and in fact, I'm convinced it's not. Um, now, hang on, we're going to look at why it's okay to, to disagree with these a little bit in a minute. So don't, don't get feeling too uh, bad. Um, let's look at chapter 33. Apostasy and wickedness will precede the second coming. Well, it's going to precede lots of time periods. And I think that, that chapter 33 is about many time periods, including the second coming. So are these wrong? No, they're correct. The question is, are they the only possible fulfillments? And the answer is no. And in fact, they were not intended to tell you uh, that they are the authoritative and exhaustive interpretation of the chapter. They were never intended to be that. Chapter headings were intended to help you find quickly the chapter you're looking for. They are not intended, I mean, it's way too small a space to be an authoritative and exhaustive interpretation, right? So they just give you the quick little, um, uh, most easily recognizable topics and interpretations in that chapter. So a friend of mine, um, Josh Sears, who's a professor in, in my department, uh, he kind of went through and categorized all of these. And uh, it, it seemed to him that uh, those who were writing the chapter headings, which is primarily headed by Bruce R. McConkie, uh, McConkie um, but there are a number of people involved, um, that Really, their, their modus operandi was that if they saw that the New Testament interpreted a certain way or the Book of Mormon interpreted a certain way, that's what they wrote in the heading. If not, then they just wrote that it happened in Isaiah's day. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have other fulfillments. They just wanted you to know that it had that fulfillment. Right? It doesn't mean it doesn't have other fulfillments. So let's read a couple of things about those study aids. This is given at the time they came out. The new study aids, the topical guide, Bible dictionary, and maps found within the covers of the new scriptures are not perfect. There will no doubt be further corrections and additions in the years ahead. Further, the cross-references, chapter headings, footnotes, topical guide, and Bible dictionary are not official pronouncements of church doctrine. That's been made very clear. This is from Elder McConkie. The new study aids include the Joseph Smith translation items, the chapter headings, the topical guide, the Bible dictionary, the footnotes, the gazetteer, and the maps. None of these are perfect. They do not of themselves determine doctrine. There have been, and undoubtedly now are, mistakes in them. Cross-references, for instance, do not establish and never were intended to prove that parallel passages, uh, that parallel passages so much as pertain to the same subject. They are aids and helps only. And this is the problem, is that we often take them to be more than they were intended to be. They're, they're supposed to be helpful, they're not supposed to be taken as doctrine. I've had the head of the, the person who at the time was the head of the church's scripture committee confirm that to me. Um, they're not intended to be taken as doctrine, they're to help you. And so I say that not because I'm trying to, to criticize these headings, but because I don't want you to look at them and say, oh, that's the only fulfillment, but that's usually what we do. I and mean, we just kind of have to take that out of our mind and say, oh, that's one of the fulfillments. I'm so glad they helped me recognize one of the fulfillments. That's the attitude that we need to have, all right? Here's one last one that was written. We don't know who the authors were that wrote this, but the group of authors that helped make the study aid said this. The authors of the supplemental materials are careful to point out, however, that these aids are not intended to be viewed as official, definitive, and exclusive doctrinal statements from the church. Right. So with that in mind, that's a lot of background, but it's just because I find that my students sometimes struggle when we start to say, okay, there are, th th this can be fulfilled this way, this way, this way, and this way, and they say, but, but in the chapter heading it says this. 
So just be grateful that it says that and look for what else it says. Right? I think that they want you to explore the scriptures more, not less, because of the chapter headings. Right? Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the some teachings that make it clear that there are multiple fulfillment uh, of, of Isaiah's prophecy. This is from uh, Nephi. And now behold, I would speak unto you concerning things which are and which are to come. Wherefore, I will read you the words of Isaiah. So see, Nephi himself is saying that this is talking about things that are and also are to come. That's more than one fulfillment. <clears throat> so that's an ancient prophet that tells us that. Let's look at a modern one. The book of Isaiah, this is from, from President Oaks. The book of Isaiah contains numerous prophecies that seem to have multiple fulfillments. One seems to involve people of Isaiah's day or the circumstances of the next generation. Another meaning, often symbolic, seems to refer to events in the meridian of time when Jerusalem was destroyed and her people scattered after the crucifixion of the Son of God. Still another meaning or fulfillment of the same prophecy seems to relate to the events attending the second coming of the Savior. Now that's not the only possible time periods, but those are the most common time periods. Isaiah's day or the next generation, the, the Savior's day and our day. Those are the most common time periods. So for most prophecies, there will be fulfillments in all three of those. Right? But there are lots of other time periods that also can have fulfillments. This is from Elder Paul. It is, of course, important to remember that many of Isaiah's prophecies can be, or have been, or will be fulfilled in more than one way and in more than one dispensation. Obviously, we have material in Isaiah's writings that applies to a whole range of experiences, including that of the pre-mortal Christ, of his first mortal advent in the meridian of time, and of his second coming in the latter days. So there's those three most common ones again. But again, it's not limited to just that. Okay, so this is just to kind of, we kind of need to have just a, a, a mental shift and start to say, you know what? I love to figure out more than one way that this is fulfilled. And it really does open Isaiah up to you. And this is one of the reasons Isaiah, if you were with me on the first day when we talked about symbols, it's one of the reasons he uses symbols so much is because they are designed to yield layers of meaning. And Isaiah wants you to get layers of meaning. All right? Now, it's not just that they have more than one fulfillment. It's that understanding, as I said, the original context can better help you understand the context in our day and how it applies to us. I can't emphasize that enough. Understanding the original context most of the time will help us interpret and understand better for our day. So it actually, studying history helps you with current and future applications. Now we're going to use a modern example of this, all right? So in order to understand this, I'm going to have to, for some of you, uh, lift your your cultural experience a little bit. Some of you are going to use a cultural element that's a little higher than you're used to and you don't usually associate with this high element of culture. And so we're going to look at a country song, all right? So, uh, and we're going to read from, a, I don't know why you laughed but anyway, okay. We're going to read from a song that's called Love Me. Most people call it, if you get there before I do, by the way. Some of you already know what this is, and the rest of you are now going to be elevated. Um, so we're going to read, uh, it really is a, a great song, and you'll see why I think that as we read. We're going to read the, the first verse of the chorus and then the second verse, okay? I read a note my grandma wrote back in 1923. Grandpa kept it in his coat, and he showed it once to me. He said, boy, you might not understand, but a long, long time ago, grandma's daddy didn't like me none, but I loved your grandma so. We had this crazy plan to meet and run away together, get married at the first time we came to, and live forever. But nailed to the tree where we were supposed to meet instead, I found this letter, and this is what it said. And then this is the chorus. 
If you get there before I do, don't give up on me. I'll meet you when my chores are through. I don't know how long I'll be. But I'm not going to let you down, darling, wait and see. And between now and then, until I see you again, I'll be loving you, love me. Alright, so that's the first verse. Now let's read the second one. I read those words just hours before my grandma passed away in the doorway of the church where me and grandpa stopped to pray. I know I've never seen him cry in all my 15 years, but as he read these words to her, his eyes filled up with tears. If you get there before I do, don't give up on me. I'll meet you when my chores are through. I don't know how long I'll be, but I'm not going to let you down, darling, wait and see. And between now and then, until I see you again, I'll be loving you love me. Now, if we only had this second verse, that, that, that chorus would still be meaningful. That would still be a, a, a powerful sentiment. But when you know the original context, how when those words were first said and what they meant then, it adds a lot of power and meaning to the second context, right? Now, I have to confess, I'm not the one who came up with this. This has been passed around my department enough. I'm not sure for sure who originally came up with it, but I think it was Mark Ellison, so I should give him credit for recognizing uh, this. I knew the song, but I never thought of applying it to, to Isaiah, but I think it, it illustrates it um, really well, that knowing the original context gives added meaning to the second context. Okay, so with that, we're going to look at a couple of prophecies with which I think you're familiar one of them especially, but, but I think you're probably familiar with all of them. And we're going to see if we can understand the original context and, and see how it helps us understand other contexts better. And we'll get better together at looking for multiple fulfillments in this way. And for this one, we're also going to do a little bit of the historical context. We actually did it yesterday, but we'll explore it a little bit more today. So we talked yesterday about the Syro-Ephraimite War. Uh, this is the time when Assyria, the big empire of Assyria, is about to come in and start to take over all of the countries on that western half of the Pearl Crescent. So they're going to try and take over Syria, the kingdom of Israel, and then the kingdom of Judah, along with Moab and Edom and Ammon and so on, and the Philistines. Uh, but, but the three we're most concerned about are Syria, kingdom of Israel, and kingdom of Judah. All right? So we're going to look at these three kings. We've got um, King Ahaz is the king in Judah. Uh, we've got King Rezin, who's the king in Syria, and Pekah, who is the, the king in uh, Israel, or sometimes called even the Samaria. And here's what has happened, that Syria and Israel have decided that they are going to resist Assyria. Rather than just give in um, and become uh, their servants, as it were, a vassal state, they have decided that they're going to resist. And they know that neither one can resist well enough on their own, they're not powerful enough, but they're hoping with an alliance that they can resist. So they form an alliance, but they still think they're not powerful enough, so they want Judah to join the alliance. The problem is that King Ahaz doesn't think that even the three of them together are powerful enough to resist Assyria. So he doesn't want to join the alliance. So Syria and Israel decide to go to war against Judah. And in fact, if you did your Come Follow Me reading not that long ago, this was a quick little blip in there, but you may have noticed it, that they are successful in that war. They, uh, they take captive a lot of people from Judah, and then a lot of people in uh, the kingdom of Israel say, you can't take captive other Israelites, send it back, and they, they send it back. Um, but for a while, Ahaz is really worried about this. And in fact, there's a rumor that besides going to war against them, that, that they're going to try and have him assassinated, and then they'll put someone on the throne that would join their alliance. So he's worried about this both because of the war and because there's a threat on his own life. Right? And, and yesterday we talked about how 
uh, as he looks at it, his choices are to, to join these two powers of the world, or Assyria, another power of the world, and it is Isaiah who will come in and give him a third option, that is, don't trust in any world of at all, trust in God, and he's going to reject that option, all right? So that's, that's an integral part of this prophecy. Um, oh yeah, there are the arrows to shake that they're going to avoid this. Now, just for fun, because I do like to make the scriptures real, I'm going to show you some pictures that might help you picture this a little bit better. Um, if you were with me in my Monday lectures, I showed you this then as well, but this isn't necessary for understanding it. This, the pictures are just for fun right now, because I think it does make it more real. So, oh, I need to get my laser pointer going. Okay. Uh, this area is the area that is the city uh, of David or Jerusalem at the time, okay? Um, so that's the area that we're talking about, and you can see how it's surrounded by these valleys. Most important to us right now is the Kidron Valley right here, okay? So this is that area where the city is, and this is the Kidron Valley right here. Here's a picture of it from up on the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley. So this is where the city of David or the original Jerusalem is, and this is the valley that we're talking about. Uh, we don't need to worry about that valley. So again, right here, now I've done too many pictures. Okay, um, here's an artist's rendition of the big walls in the valley, so you get an idea. Now, the key, what makes it so you can live in Jerusalem, is that they have a spring. The spring is lower down on the hill um, than where the city was going to be built, because it's easier to protect it up here. So they built this big tower. Ignore this part. We used to think there was a pool there. Now we figure out there's something else going on. But the, it was too like this artist had gone it that way. So ignore that part. But they built a big tower over that spring, and then these kind of extend the walls to go down and, uh, and see that they get to the spring, so you get your water. So here you can see this is uh, one of those walls. This is the other one of those walls. That's what we want to see. Anyway, this, this see the two walls there. Uh, as you go down, uh, archaeologically, that's Jeff Chadwick. If anyone knows him, he's an archaeologist in Israel that also teaches here at BYU. And you go down there, and you eventually get to the Gideon Spring. Okay, that's the Gideon Spring there. So what happened is, now these guys didn't remember to, or didn't know to draw the towers here, but they knew this part, that the, the water would come outside. Most of the water would come outside. Uh, there was a, a ditch or a conduit, a trench, that uh, would allow the water to come out, and it flooded this first field, and then they could irrigate these other fields from it. Okay, here's another rendition of it. Um, this has the tower from a little bit longer, that's okay. And then you can get a lot of water here, and then all along here. So this was so flooded and so marshy that they didn't try and grow plants there. Instead, they did their laundry there. That's where they would wash. Uh, and so it was called the fuller's field, because a fuller is someone who uh, does the, the laundry. So now that you can picture all that, let's get into the scriptural text. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth to meet uh, now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shirkash of thy son, at the end of the conduit, or the ditch, or the trench, of the upper pool, that's that pool that's uh, inside the tower, in the highway of the floor's Right, So we know exactly where he's going to give this prophecy. That's that's kind of fun. It's Here's the, the, the upper pool, and here's the, the fuller's field, and there's this little path that goes along there, so he's right there, somewhere along that path. Right? He, he has, doesn't want to listen to him, so he's just going to meet him where he knows he's going to go. All right? And then, so he's, he's going to go and tell Ahaz, you don't need to worry about what Syria and Israel are threatening to do to you. Let God take care of it. You don't do anything, let God take care of it. Now, as I said, unfortunately, he won't listen to 
Isaiah, he's going to make an alliance with us, Syria. Syria will protect him from those countries, but they take him over as a result. Uh, so it was a bad idea to listen to Isaiah, which is always the case. You should listen to the prophet, right? Um, but this is what Isaiah tells him. Thus saith the Lord, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliasa. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So, you see what he's telling him? Don't worry about it. Within, and, and it's interesting that here he says within 65 years, because the second later he's going to give him a much smaller time period, and it does happen within a much smaller time period. But he says within a little while, no one's going to be left. Now, part of the reason I think he gives this 65 years is still too long, but um, is because Assyria will come in and conquer them, and then uh, take some people out. So that happens in 730 BC, but they rebel again in 721. Assyria comes and destroys them again. So 10 years later, there's a second destruction, and so on. That's still less than 65. But anyway, um, but his answer is, don't do anything. God will get rid of those people, your enemies, for you. And then, to make sure that you listen, he says, I, I, want you to, to, I want you to know that this really is a prophecy, so ask me for a sign, any kind of a sign, in the heaven above or in the earth beneath. And Ahaz, who has already made up his mind that he's not going to listen to Isaiah, tries to find a way out of it. He doesn't want a sign, because then he's even more trouble when he ignores the prophet. So he says, no, 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 I don't want to tempt the Lord. No, I'm not going to tempt it, right? This is facetious. He, he, he just doesn't want to hear it. He says, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask for a sign. And so Isaiah says, well, you're wearing men, now you're wearing God also. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And this is the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. <clears throat> For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now that's an interesting sign, because the sign is the prophecy actually coming to pass, right? He says that by, by a certain time period, there'll be a child, and we'll get into the timing in just a minute. Those two kingdoms you're worried about, they're going to be gone. Now we, we focus on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's the, the first verse in there, where it gives us the phrase Emmanuel. We call it the Emmanuel prophecy, right? And I'm glad we focus on this. It's, it's an important focus. What does it mean? Literally, it means, so im means with, new is us, and el is God. So literally, with us is God, or God is with us. So this child that is the subject of the prophecy is somehow going to show them that God is with them. All right? So we have to ask, how, how could this be a sign? It's an interesting it's an interesting sign. We'll look at that as we go along. And we have to also ask, when could it be fulfilled? What are the fulfillments of this sign? What's the timing of it? Now, we all know that the primary and most important fulfillment of this is Christ, who literally is born of a virgin and who literally is God with mankind or God with us. Right? So Christ is the most important and, and primary fulfillment of this. But in some ways, he's... Yeah, but we know he's not the only fulfillment, and we'll look at why. And in some ways, we have to look for a, a more quick fulfillment of this. As we do this, we need to understand this. The Hebrew word alma can mean either a virgin or it can simply mean a young woman. All right, so there is a word that can mean, it only means virgin, 
And Isaiah chooses not to use that word. Instead, he uses a word that in its essence means young woman, but because most young women were virgins, then it also is associated with being a virgin. And so I would say this is one of those times where Isaiah is intentionally vague. He has chosen a more vague word because he wants it to have more than one fulfillment. All right? And we have to look specifically at the when. That set of verses gave us some a, a time period, a specific when. So let's look at it, all right? This, these are the verses again, and look at this part. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of thou birth shall be forsaken of both regions. So we'd say before someone knows the difference between good and evil, typically we'd say that's around eight-ish years, right? So there is a child who will be born in around eight years, and or the, before that child is eight years old, those two kingdoms are going to be gone. You won't have to worry about them. Now that's interesting. This prophecy is given, we don't know exactly when, but it's around 735 B.C. That's about when Ahaz starts his reign, and we know this is early in his reign. So it's given about 735 B.C. Christ is born about 4 B.C. So Christ is 730 years after this. That's, that's much longer than 8 years old. Right? Uh, so it, at least one of the fulfillments, one of the, the primary and intended fulfillments of this can't be Christ. I think Christ is the most important fulfillment, but, but there has to be another fulfillment that is not Christ that's going to happen within eight years of a child being born. All right? So let's look at some other clues. This is from Isaiah chapter 8, the next chapter, all right? where he says, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, and write in it with a man's pen, consigning Maharshal Hashbaz. And I took him to be faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Tiberachiah. All right, so he, they watch him write Maharshal Hashbaz on this, on this scroll, all right? And then I went in under the prophets. That would be his wife, who is a young woman. She's not a virgin. They already have a child. But she is a young woman. And she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord unto me, call his name Maharshal Hashbaz, which is a really cool name. And you should all say it three times really fast in the name of your own child. That name. <laughs> um, Verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus, and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the kingdom of Syria. Alright? So, it's the same sign. The riches of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria are going to be taken away. He's telling him again, these kingdoms are going to be taken care of. They're going to be destroyed. But we want to look at the wind. And we've got a different wind this time. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother. Now, that's interesting. Because that's, that, I mean, basically old enough to talk, and that's usually around two years old, right? So if, if it's, say, a couple months after he meets Ahaz that, uh, that Mrs. Isaiah gets pregnant, and then we've got like nine months and then two months. So it's about three years after the first prophecy, within about three years, those two kingdoms are going to be destroyed. Okay. So clearly one of the fulfillments is Maharshal Hashbaz, his son, uh, that that the birth of Maharshal Hashbaz, born of a young woman, uh, within, by the time he's about two years old, those two kingdoms will, will be taken away. Elder Holland commented on this. He said, the dual or parallel fulfillment of this prophecy comes in the realization that Isaiah's wife, a pure and good young woman, symbolically representing another pure young woman, did bring forth a son. This boy's birth was a type and shadow of the greater and later fulfillment of that prophecy, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The dual fulfillment here is particularly interesting in light of the fact that Isaiah's wife apparently was of royal blood, and therefore her son was of the royal line of David. Isaiah's son is thus the type, the prefiguring, of the greater Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, who would be born of a literal virgin. So, we know that Maharshal Hashbaz is one of the fulfillments of this, but I would say he's not the only one. Remember, we've got this discrepancy in age, because we had before he's old enough to talk, and before he's old enough to refuse evil and, and choose good. So I suspect there's another fulfillment that we should look at. And most uh, Jews, I would say probably most people in the days of Isaiah, and since then most Jews have taken this to be King Hezekiah. This is Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who was born about 740 BC. All right? So that would have made him about five years old at the time of the Emmanuel prophecy. And remember that it's about three years later that this is going to happen, and five plus three, it turns out, equals eight. Right? So this works extremely well. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there a way that, that Hezekiah might be a sign that God was with them? And there certainly is. So Hezekiah's mother, he's, one of the, he's the first son, right? So his mother was a young woman when he was conceived. Hezekiah, when he is older and is king, under Isaiah's tutelage, when the Assyrians are trying to destroy Judah, will get his people to get rid of their idolatry, repent, renew their covenant with God, and then they will uh, and serve God, and then they will be miraculously spared. Making it very clear, because God destroys the Assyrian army for them, making it very clear that God is with them. There's no doubt that God is with them when that Assyrian army is destroyed by God. So I think Hezekiah is a fulfillment. Now I'd like to suggest this. When I think of Hezekiah as a prefiguring of Christ, and I'll go through that list again of what he did, it helps me understand Christ better. So again, this is what Hezekiah did. He got his people to get rid of the idolatry in their lives, and to repent, and to renew their covenant, and serve God, so that then God would save them. Understanding that does help me understand Christ better. And that's the power of recognizing this original context and how it helps us understand the, the messianic or the, the Christ-centered context all of that. Well, that's the question that I'm supposed to have up right there. Let's look at another example of that. Well, we only have 15 minutes. We may not be able to do all my examples, but this is another one that's really fun, right? This, this is a multiple fulfillment that is in Isaiah chapter 22. You may not be super familiar with 22, but there are a couple of phrases from it that I think you'll be familiar with, all right? Um, Thus saith Lord God of hosts, go get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, that's the name of the, the treasurer who's a steward over the king's house, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here, and whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out of sepulchre here, as he that heweth him out of sepulchre on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. So the Lord is upset with Shebna, and why? We have to read the whole chapter to get more of it, but he is emblematic of something that's going on in Judah at the time, when the Assyrians are about to invade, Shebna, who is over the king's place, instead of helping them repent and get ready, he's using all, finding all of the wealth he can to build himself a great big tomb. Right? And interestingly, we've actually found his tomb. This is the inscription that says that Shebna, son of so-and-so, and so-and-so, that, that, that's his tomb, uh, the lentil to his tomb right there. Um, so the question is, what is God going to do uh, because Shebna is not trusting in God, but is instead trying to aggrandize himself and what's going to happen to him? Well, God says he's going to be carried away in captivity. And uh, he's going to be violently taken there, and he will uh, lose his station, and he's going to die in Babylon. Or, sorry, in Assyria. Um, so, that's, that's important, all right? Now, 
we're to, as we leave that part and get to the next set of verses, we're going to encounter a recurring theme in Isaiah. We don't have time to go into this in depth, but there is a recurring theme we get again and again. And I think it's best exemplified, and I'll just tell you as a bishop, I talk to, to people about this all the time when they come in and talk to me about their sins. We read these verses, um, and this is where God says, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Now look at, at the juxtaposition of these things. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment or live the oppressive poor. And then the next verse is, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Right? But this coupling is important. You have to get rid of the bad and replace it with good. That's a theme in Isaiah. It's a theme in the gospel. If you're going to get rid of the bad, it has to be replaced with good. So if we're tossing Shebna out, then what do we do? We replace him with someone who will do this right. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe, Shebna's robe, and strengthen him with thy robe, and I will commit thy government into his hand. So he's getting all of the, his office and all the trappings of his office. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and, and to the house of David. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So shall he, or he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. All right, so let's ask, what are the signs of Eli Eliakim's office? This new office, where they were the signs of Shebna's, but now of Eliakim's office. Well, he'll be clothed with the robe, and it will be given a girdle, and he'll have a key of the house of David laid upon his shoulders. All right? Now that's interesting because the same language is used to describe the clothing that Aaron wears as high priest. First of all, he has a robe, and he has a girdle. He also has a breastplate, as not mentioned, but then he has some symbols placed on his, uh, of his authority placed on his shoulder. And in fact, it's this idea when we read it earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 9, the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the imagery that they're drawing upon. Right. So, uh, we, we've looked at, uh, oh, we, we, we mixed this up. What are the signs of this office? Uh, we, we've looked at, but now let's look at, at what he's going to do. Eliakim will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. All right, now I'm just going to, to tell you right away, Eliakim is a prefiguring of Christ. So think of what, as we learn about what Eliakim does, how this helps us understand Christ better. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Uh, the, the, the key of the house of David, he'll be upon his shoulder, and because of that, he'll be able to open, and none shall shut, and none shall shut, and none shall open. He has the power that besides the king, no one is more powerful than him in the kingdom. If he says something is going to happen, it will happen. If he says something can't happen, it can't happen. All right? Now look at this next part. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. That's, that's interesting stuff. Right now, again, if we're going to understand Eliakim uh, and how he's a prefigure of Christ, let's know the history. Eliakim is the person who works with Hezekiah to get Israel to get rid of their idolatry, or Judah to get rid of their idolatry, to repent, to renew their covenant, uh, and to serve God so that they'll be miraculously spared. If you remember when you were doing your Come Follow Me reading, and there was a servant of the Assyrian king, Rav Shekeh, who comes and yells up to the walls and says, you guys should all surrender. The servants of Hezekiah that come to answer him, Eliakim is the head of those servants. We've been reading about the same Eliakim you may not remember, but he is the one who is doing everything on Hezekiah's behalf. And along with Hezekiah is responsible for is for Judah and Jerusalem repenting and being saved. Okay, so that's part of why we're going to get this this business about being a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the house of David, and the key of the house of David on his shoulders. And 
as he gets rid of the idolatry, and he's the one that starts the Passover that they have naturally and renew the covenant and so on. He, he's the one who's making all that happen, and that, again, hopefully helps us understand Christ. So let's ask this question. What is the nail that it's talking about? Well, in some ways, this is the symbol for saying, what, what I'm fastening upon him, no one can undo it. God's giving him this power, and it can't be undone. But there's another symbol that's kind of fun as well. We know that in some of the neighboring cultures, when they made a temple or an important house, they put a symbolic nail in that house that had the treaty or the covenant or the promise or the vow associated with that temple or that house written on it. And it would be called the, the sure nail. And it, it is sure because it fastens the covenant that connects God and the people who are coming into that temple to worship God. Right, so now I ask this question again. How might we understand the prophecy about Christ better? Because obviously this is also a prophecy about Christ when we talk about names, fascinating someone, and about the key to the house of David, and about being the glory of his father's throne and none being greater than him. Obviously this is about Christ. But I understand it better when I understand that Eliakim is representing the great king, the true king, and is the one who is helping get everyone to repent and be connected with God through a treaty or a covenant so that they can be saved by God. Right? Seeing what Eliakim does helps me understand the fulfillment in Christ all the better. Let's look at at least one more, and we'll see if we have time for more than this. This is another one that I would guess you're familiar with, but I hope you can see a different meaning in this. All right, this is in Isaiah chapter 29, and it starts out, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. We'll talk about the meaning of Ariel in a second, but it's clearly Jerusalem because it's the city where David dwelt. And he's saying, you can make all the sacrifices you want, but, and this is because they've been wicked and they haven't repented, I'm going to distress Ariel and there will be heaviness and sorrow. All right? Now this, is, in fact, is one of those prophecies that God says, I'm going to bring all this upon you if you don't repent. But they did repent, and so it didn't come upon them fully. Jerusalem was spared. They had bad stuff happen to them, but they were spared. Okay? So we have to ask ourselves, what is Ariel? Well, literally, that word means heart. But that's probably not what it means here, because it, it also might be what we call kind of a compound word in construct form, which would be R-E-L, which literally means Lion of God, right? And David is sometimes called the Lion of God. Um, and so I suspect that that probably refers to David, um, and thus it would refer to David's city, um, and uh, that's Jerusalem. So this brings up another chance for a Mythbuster. Um, uh, we hear in Scripture, some of David's city is referred to a number of times. One time, Luke says it's Bethlehem. Luke, who is a Greek, who's never been to the Holy Land, doesn't know the geography or anything else going on. He says, well, David was born in Bethlehem. That must be David's city. The rest of the time, it refers to David's city as talking about Jerusalem. Right? So we can sing once in, in Royal David's city and name Bethlehem, but don't get confused and think that any other place except for Luke 2 is just talking about Bethlehem. It's talking about Jerusalem. All right? So... You can change the Christmas name in your mind if you want. I don't do it your way. But, but either way, whether it's a hearth or, or a, the Lion of God, it's clear it's talking about Jerusalem, right? And then God says that he's going to camp against it, round about, and lay siege against it with a mount, and raise forts against it, and thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust. 
and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. So let's ask about possible interpretations of that, especially this, this part about being brought down low and speaking low out of the dust. Right, that's a phrase that we're familiar with. How do we usually interpret this? We usually interpret this as the Book of Mormon, right? And I think that's a valid interpretation. Why, why do we interpret it that way? Well, uh, one reason is that Nephi tells us that we should interpret it that way. And second, because we think of the golden plates are buried in the, the ground, and it has the words of an ancient people that then come to light to us. Right? Very, very valid interpretation. Are there other possible interpretations? And you're, you know I'm going to say yes, because I think there usually are other interpretations. So let's ask this question. How would they have interpreted it? Well, I think that they, in Isaiah, they would have interpreted it this way. That as the Assyrians came through, they killed all sorts of people all around Jerusalem, and some of the people in Jerusalem. And those people stood as a witness as they were buried in the ground or as their bones moldered into the ground. They stood as a witness that the people in Jerusalem needed to repent. Because Isaiah had warned those people if they didn't repent, they would be destroyed, and they didn't repent, and they were destroyed. And their bodies spoke out of the dust as a witness to the people in Jerusalem's day that they better take the prophets seriously. And they listened. And they repented. Is that a valid interpretation? I think it is. I think it's, it's probably the original interpretation and, and certainly a very important and intended interpretation. So one question we should ask ourselves, ourselves is, are the people of Isaiah's day speaking out of the dust to us? Are they speaking to you that way? And in general, the idea of them speaking low out of the dust is about all of the ancient prophets and all of our ancient and Israelite ancestors speaking to us and us learning from them. If come follow me this year is about anything, it is about this. Is it, about, it is about our learning from our Israelite ancestors as they speak to us out of the dust, through the Bible, and then in two years, out of the book, through the Book of Mormon. It should be both, right? So, uh, what about the Book of Mormon interpretation? Not only of this, but lots of other interpretation Nephi gives us. We should take them seriously. Nephi is very clear that he is giving all of these things a very specific Nephite interpretation. Sometimes he stretches it just a little bit, but it works. And I think it's a very valid interpretation. But Nephi's clear, this is the Nephi interpretation. He is never saying it's the only interpretation. In fact, it's clear that we should, when he says like unto ourselves, he's talking specifically about how Isaiah talks about covenant people, and so covenant people should figure out how it's about them. That makes it clear that there is more than just a Nephi interpretation. And so as we look, we should look at what Nephi teaches us, but not think that that's the only interpretation. Okay. We have five minutes left to do one more, or four minutes left to do one more, but this is a fun one because it's a mixed fulfillment, all right? Uh, this is Isaiah 63, and again, I think you'd be familiar with this. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is, it starts out with questions and then answers. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. The answer, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now they ask another question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine pack? Look at the answer. I have trodden the winepress alone. Now, as soon as we hear that, and, and of the people there were none with there was none with me. 
As soon as we hear that, we think of the interpretation, rightly so, of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, although that was an olive press, but still, you get the idea. In the Garden of Gethsemane, suffering for our sins so that he bleeds from every pore so that his garments are red as if he had tread in a wine press alone. An absolutely important and valid interpretation, but look at the very next line. All right, so again, I'll read, I, will, uh, uh, I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. That's about the second coming. That's not something he did in the first coming. That's about the second coming. And in this case, his garments are red with the blood of others who are being meted out justice. Now, that's, that's more than one fulfillment in the same verse, uh, and they're almost mutually exclusive of each other, but they work together. It is because Christ suffered and tread the winepress alone during his mortal ministry in Gethsemane and on the cross, that he can tread down our true enemy, Satan and death and hell, and to conquer those enemies and deliver us from them. This, this text is really about delivering those who needed to be delivered because no one else was going to deliver them. And it's about not just in the first coming, and it's not about not just the second coming, it's about all of us, every single person throughout all of time, needs deliverance from all sorts of people, but most especially from death and hell and Satan himself. And Christ has tread the winepress alone, has trodden, I think is the right word, has trodden the winepress alone and stained his garments so that he can deliver us because there was no one else to deliver us. But he did it, and we can be delivered. And understanding how these, all of these fulfillments that we've talked about, under, they help me understand Christ better and what Christ does for me. So again, I will emphasize that I think we do ourselves a disservice when we won't look for more than one fulfillment. And we should ask ourselves, why are there so many fulfillments? And it's typically because we keep doing, the mankind keeps doing the same thing again and again and again. And so we need Christ again and again and again. And that should teach us that Christ is the one who saves us all in all ages. And of that I testify and thank God for in the name of Jesus Christ.